So I just want to say the charge against God is based on something that people are saying is objectively wrong, even though in reality you need to point out that it's not objectively wrong, it's wrong to you. It wasn't wrong to Hitler to murder Jews and black people. That wasn't wrong to him, nor was it wrong to those in most cases that carried it out. So it's important for us to realize that you're making a charge while borrowing from something that we as Christians say comes from Christian theism, and that is that there's an objective rule maker. You're saying there is no rule maker, that everyone is a rule maker. Well, who gets to make the rules for other people? Well, you're making rules for other people by saying that you shouldn't rape a little child. Why not? Why don't you rape old people then? We can't do that either. Well, why is rape wrong to start with? All of these things, I think, are hanging in midair, as others have rightly said. It is what we've dealt with, at least touched on, and that is the problem of relativism, that you have nowhere to hang your hat in terms of what's right or wrong. Why is evil assumed, why evil is assumed to be the problem? Primarily because people don't like whatever it is that they're hearing about. So, ought to be, all I'm telling you, is requiring a higher standard. Ought to be requires an, a, a higher standard. It ought not be that children are raped. It ought not be that needles are stuck into babies' eyeballs. It ought not be. All of those ought not be. It ought not be that people are sent to concentration camps and systematically killed. It ought not be that people are exterminated because of their ethnic background. It ought not be. You're saying those things, but you have to have an exterior standard to them. Um, I talk about Sam Harris's little book, Letters to a, Letter to a Christian Nation. Doug Wilson, who's a pithy author, wrote a response in his book, which is available for free online, which is nice, called A Letter from a Christian Citizen. And in his response, uh, I like the way he puts it, as he often does in very terse, pithy ways. He said, atheism not only casts doubts upon the idea of benevolent God, but it also destroys the very concept of benevolence itself. That's good. When you reject the triune God, something objective, something sovereign, something supreme, something authoritative, something to whom, someone to whom we must give an account, and you do it in the name of benevolence, we need goodness in the world. We shouldn't have bad rapists in the world, right? Well, then I want to know what this all authoritative benevolence actually is by your accounting. Where do you get it? Where does it come from? What is it? Now, they're going to be tired of hearing this, and they are starting to hear it a lot from Christians these days, but it is the right question. And they might come up with ways to, in their anger, shout out responses to you. But in reality, there's no good answer for it. There is no good answer and there's no way to justify your morality outside of yourself. You can state things like suffering. We shouldn't have suffering. Well, you, okay, you can decide that. You can decide a lot of things about a lot of things, but you're going to have to come up with a set of rules that you make for yourself. And... Eventually, if everyone lives by that, you're going to have chaos. As it says in the Bible, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Uh, and that is what we had, not only in the book of Judges, but through a lot of periods of history. And you can group together and have 15 people that do the right thing, or 150 people in some street gang, uh, and they get to decide what they choose to affirm and what they choose to fight against. I should quote more from this book. Helpful. Many atheists have squarely faced the consequences of what they say they believe, but you do not begin to approach this, Wilson says to Harris. And this is why your question to Christians is sad more than anything else. Do you have the courage to admit the obvious, they say, Sam Harris says. And he quotes Holmes. Holmes, he said, he knew what morality was given the premise, preferences regarding the morality were just that. They were just preferences. They are more or less arbitrary. And he was the Supreme Court justice, you might remember back in the day. 
Settle in your mind without fragments of this atheistic sacrimony, emotional detritus of a leftover previous Christian era. You're borrowing from Christianity to even have this indignation. Um, he says, uh, let Holmes spell it out. Your preference is, is your truth. Or try it out. Truth is the majority view of a nation that can lick all the other nations, which he said in his book, which I've read external from Wilson. And rights are what a given crowd will fight for, as I quoted earlier. If the material universe is what you claim, Wilson says to Harris, then you need to embrace the ramifications of what you claim. The wiping out of a nation or a city does not have the significance that you unsuccessfully try to create for it. As Holmes said, I doubt if a shutter would go through the spheres if a whole ant heap was kerosene, right? Your ideas are nothing more than uh, this curious uh, kind of phenomenon in the chemical vat of your brain, of what you call your brain. And Holmes points out the comparative value of one part of your body over another. I wonder if cosmically an idea is any more important than your bowels. Now, even Holmes was fully consistent with his premise because if that's what he thought were correct, if that's what he thought was correct, then all thoughts on the same level are on the same level of bowel movement. Ultimately, there's no distinction. It would include both the particular thought of his, to which he gives full liberty to ignore. Great set of quotations. Once you stop swaddling in the reality of the world, suffering and religious fantasies, you will feel your bones just how precious life is. That's what uh, Sam Harris says. Um, and indeed, how unfortunate that it is the millions of human beings that suffer the harrowing abridgments of their happiness for no good reasons at all. Uh, but then Wilson responds, but there have been any clear-sighted atheists who have preceded you who felt nothing short of this kind of, or nothing of this kind of, uh, of, of moving and, and abhorrence in their bones. And they can explain to you clearly why. There's nothing in the sky above us, right? Then certain things follow. Your sentimental atheism is simply a hodgepodge of leftover Christianity. Right. A lot of philosophical talk, but the reality is that we, if you think hard about it, think long enough about it, there is no reason for you to affirm a morality that should go outside of yourself, and even affirming your own morality is so arbitrary, you might as well just not affirm anything, or affirm whatever you want, but certainly don't wag your finger at anyone else for doing the same if it's not consistent with yourself. Ought to be. The ought to be's that go outside of yourself demand some kind of higher standard. And as others have said, I think Frank Turek in his book and um, Norm Geisler in his book, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, point this out well. You borrow from Christian theism to try and make your claims about so many things, including the charge that God is not good to allow evil in this world. The definitions themselves require some kind of objective truth. Here are the biblical assertions, and let's just be clear about these. We can cover these quickly, I assume, at least the first couple. God, of course, in the Bible is an all-knowing God. He's an omniscient God. Daniel 2, 20, blessed be the name of God, to whom belong all wisdom and might. The scripture would say elsewhere here, it simply just says, belong wisdom and might. He gives to the wise and uh, he gives to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. That's just one poetic passage, and I quote a bunch of different ones every time I try to talk about God's omniscience, but there's a good one I chose for tonight. God knows all that can be known. We're not open theists. 
in the sense that we believe that God is learning. We're not process theologians trying to think that God is in process. We believe that God has all knowledge that can be known, both real, factual, and both uh, actual and, and potential. He knows all things. Not that I'm a middle knowledge guy, if you know what that is, but the idea of God knowing everything. He knows everything. He knows all potentialities. He knows the reality. He knows what happened. He knows what will happen. God is all-knowing. By definition, that's who God is. That's who he's revealed himself to be in the Bible. And it makes perfect sense. Back to our ontological argument I think I touched on and dared to enlist in our theism lecture. God knows everything. Secondly, of course, he's all-powerful. Job 42.2, I know you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God can do anything he wants. If you want to stop a little girl from being raped, he can stop that. He could obliterate the entire Third Reich. He could, he could obliterate every uh, oppressor in every situation of someone being subjugated. God is a God who can do all those things. There's no bout, doubt about that. The Bible's clear on God's attributes of omnipotence. And of course, the Bible says he's all good. Ultimately, in the end, here's the assertions. I know these don't mesh with people's minds. We'll talk more to try and help figure this out. But as Deuteronomy 32 says, God, in this case the rock, his works are perfect and all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness who is without iniquity, just and upright is he. God is a God who always does what's right. So I've got to somehow start changing my definition somewhere, even though people will claim you can't have your cake and eat it too. You're trying to claim God is good. There's stuff in the world that's not good. You're trying to claim that God is powerful. There's stuff that would seem to be, and here's the assumption, that God would stop all of those things if he had the power to do it. And... He knows about it. Fourthly, he's completely sovereign. We'll talk more about this as we near the end. But of course, the Bible's clear that everything is on track, including the suffering of the world. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, in him we've obtained an inheritance, thinking specifically in this passage about our salvation, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, now we get to the big picture, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He consults himself and no one else. What he wants to do is what he does. He's completely sovereign. This has been the assertion of the church until late, until we've had a lot of leaders within the church wielding a lot of authority in a lot of circles of people that are willing to buy their tripe today that have not thought through the issues and are not entirely biblical. But the church at large, at least the core of the church, who has understood biblical theology, which has been the majority of the church, at least in the converted church, they have taught this, that God is a completely sovereign God. So all of that it seems to be, so far, bows at the feet of the accusation. 